Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Today, I'm talking to Elizabeth about mental health, physical health, and the bureaucracy of survival. Our connection was a little bit spotty, and we lost some sound quality, so I'm sorry about any weirdness in your ears. Before I jump in, here's my normal disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. It sounds like something really cool to be able to do when you're stuck at home. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, I like the internet so much for being able to connect online with people. And I realized, I think at first I was like, I want to know what everyone's doing that's working for them, like to collect everyone's secrets for surviving. And that's still kind of true. But as I've started talking to people, I just like talking to people. Yeah. It gets lonely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's it. Okay. So like I said, I just like to start with, were you healthy as a kid? As a kid, physically, yeah, I would say I was, I was very healthy. Um, I had like some stuff. I I like had normal like heart, I had a heart murmur, but that went away. And I had random kid stuff. What was the problem when I was a kid was my um my mental health that started at a very early age, and I believe that there's a lot of connection between mental health and physical health and trauma and they all kind of go together yeah totally and my my experience with that kind of stuff and being a kid is that you don't know yet that anything is unusual so do you feel like you were you in a situation where you recognized that something wasn't right that might be the wrong word or is more of this in retrospect for mental health stuff. Yeah, I um it I was very frustrated. I it was it was frustrating not being able to control myself. So I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 9, but they told me at that point, well they told my parents that I would probably be bipolar. I was just too young for it. Then at 12 I was bipolar, which is a very young age for that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And then I got more diagnoses as I got older. Um, but yeah, I, I knew that I couldn't control my emotions. And I knew I was the one sent to the back of the classroom because I couldn't sit still. I knew I was different. And it was incredibly frustrating. Yeah. And so with ADHD, I guess maybe were you put on medication? Yes, I was put on Ritalin. Ritalin. At- And then I've been on lithiums. For bipolar? Yeah. Yeah. At 12? Yeah, at 12. Wow. And And that actually caused some physical issues for me when I was 22, 21, 22. I had my thyroid completely removed because the lithium had turned it twice its size and turned it green. So there's a lot of, a lot of comorbidity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So diagnosis. I I don't know what it's like to be healthy. Right. And I I don't know what it's like to not take medicine. Yeah. I I did. I also did have asthma growing up. So I've always had to be the kid who brought her medications to the sleepovers and had to go to the school nurse at lunch. And I can't remember what it's like without it. Yeah. Yeah, without this extra thing taking up, like, cognitive real estate. You can't just take off. You can't just go do your thing. No. There's always Yeah. Yeah. And, wow. I mean, 12 sounds very young to start lithium. I've talked to a few people who have taken lithium at different times, but that's an aggressive diagnosis. Whether or not it's, you know, wow. Um I don't dispute it. And yeah. lithium is a wonder drug pretty much. But. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's just like 12. Um, and so then 
How, how was high school? Did it help? So I was good until eighth grade. And in eighth grade, end of seventh, eighth grade, I things just really took a turn. As a child, I was very gifted. I was in all the gifted classes. Sometimes they didn't have enough gifted classes. So I would have private tutoring and advanced studies because they just didn't have anything to do for me. I was like an early reader. I was advanced in all these things. The time I got to eighth grade, I was in like the resource center and things like that. It was a total switch from what I was used to because my mental health had affected my cognitive abilities so much that I simply couldn't, um, couldn't understand the material anymore. And then by freshman year, I was in and out of the hospital every few months for psychiatric reasons. Okay. And that would be really tough. I was very ostracized by my classmates. They did not, because they were kids. They didn't understand why someone was acting like that. Yeah. I've had them tell me now, some of them, that, like, we, they feel bad for not understanding. But, like, how could you? You're 14 years old. Yeah. I didn't understand. Right. You have no context. Yeah. Yeah. So you were in and out of the hospital in high school. And how long would you say that that kind of period went on for? From age 14 to early 20s. Early 20s. And early 20s is also, it sounds like, when you had the thyroid issue. Yes. Yeah. That's when I had the thyroid taken out. And, and that, it was around me. I was going to say, did that change um, your medication protocol? I'm on thyro- uh, levothyroxine now. Mm-hmm. So I'll be on that forever because I don't have anything left. Right. Yeah. Um, that, that got added to it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so did you finish high school? How was – it's it's hard to prioritize, like – I don't know, something that feels arbitrary when there's something bigger going on. But how was the school side of things? I did finish high school. In fact, I finished a semester early. And the last semester that I was in high school, I actually spent half days volunteering at the special school district. So I I was very proud. People didn't expect me to, to graduate. And I... I actually got an award from, I was in a alternative learning program and I got an award from them for like outstanding senior and I graduated early and yeah, I, my motto has always been prove them wrong. Yeah. That's what I choose to do. Yeah. I went to a self-paced high school, which is what it sounds like. Like there were semesters and there were classes, but you could choose to do them faster or slower basically and for a while that was really helpful when I I think I missed a month of school at one point and it was like you just figure it out after yeah um okay so then after high school what did you do after high school I went to college for a while it wasn't great for me Mm -hmm. um I was enrolled in college when in in a distance learning program when I got sick. Okay. And I had to drop out. And when you say I got sick, so this is when physical symptoms started? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, and distance program, were you still living at home? At this point, no, I was living with my partner, Dustin. Okay. Okay. Um, and then you started. So how did the physical stuff start? I had fevers regularly, um, muscle pain, joint pain, fatigue, rashes, um, like face rashes. Mm-hmm. Um, that was those were the main things for the beginning. Um, they had me take the ANA test, and it was positive for lupus. But that's the only time it's ever been positive. So okay. they give me a lupus diagnosis, even though I meet all of the criteria except for the ANA stuff. So 
I have a lupus-like syndrome. Mm-hmm. That... And I'm treated as it's lu- like it's lupus. And but... you're treated for lupus, like lupus. Okay. I'm and... on plaque. Pardon? I'm on plaque now. You're on plaque now. Yeah. So, which is an um, an immunosuppressant, right? Yes. Yes. An antimalarial. An antimalarial. I just Googled the spelling for that today, actually, when I was doing the transcript for the episode that went out today. Half of transcribing is just making sure I spell drug names right on these episodes. I always spell it wrong to the point where my autocorrect spells it wrong now. <laughs> um, and so at the beginning, when you first started to show these symptoms, did you immediately think something was wrong or did it kind of build into something? Or when did you go to the doctor, I guess? So I actually, the first time I went to the doctor was, I think, three years before that. In okay. 2012, so two years before that. Um, my dad had just died. And it was a very traumatic event for me. And they believed then that I had um, fibromyalgia. But, and, and I went with that for a while. But the symptoms from that I was experiencing just didn't seem quite right. And what um, was, at that point, what prompted the fibro diagnosis? The pain. Pain. Like nerve but pain, I, general, it was, it was everything. Muscle, uh, muscle pain, just joint pain, just general, yeah. not feeling good, that I believe was brought on by the trauma. Yeah. Um, so I'm sorry, then what was your question about? So that was the first time you went to the doctor about physical stuff was. Yeah. That sounds like in your late teens, early 20s, That's early 20s, early 20s, 20, 24. Okay. At 24. Um, and then I'm just thinking it through in terms of what your life must've been like. And at that point, were you in the, the learning, the distance learning program in college? Yes. Yes. And at then, that point, I was going to college. Yeah. In a physical place. Oh, going to a physical college. Okay. And then, yeah, that would get harder <laughs> as things became harder. Um, and so you were doing that. And then you're, were you treated for fibro in any way? Like, not. I, I believe I was given a medication. And those. It's hard to remember. Things. Yeah, no, that's totally fine. Because I think the. Like right now, I think they prescribe Lyrica to a lot of people, but yeah. I don't know. Like, I, I think, think it depends on the doctor you see and the protocol they recommend. So it, and I think a lot of people are kind of told to live with it. Well, the problem is being a woman, being a young woman and being a young woman with mental illness, nobody will take you seriously if you say you're sick. Yeah. You have to fight so hard to be heard. Yeah. Yeah. I would... Yes, I <laughs> have been sent away a lot and it comes up so much. The number of times that people are diagnosed with mental health diagnoses when they are only there for physical issues, which is like, I, I can't imagine the compounding when you are, when you know and you believe that you have, like that the mental health diagnosis is appropriate and also like the pain is not related. Right. Yeah. And there's no reason for me to have these fevers. There's no reason for my CRP to be elevated. There's no reason for my sed rate to be elevated or have the arthritis. Like you can't blame that on schizoaffective disorder. That's, that's for lack of a better term, real. Right. I hate using that word, but yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I would love to have good words for that because I agree and I also I agree with you that mental health and physical health are so related but for me the first time that something showed up like on a lab test or something that was measurable it was like aha this is a real thing it's not in my head I told you yeah the thing is wanting a serious diagnosis like after going through so many things and saying no it's not that it's not that Nobody should pray to have cancer. Nobody should pray for these awful things. And the feeling, but but you do because you want 
So, because at least then you'll have an answer and a path and a plan. Yeah. And it's a terrible feeling to be hoping to be sick. Yeah. Although you know you're sick, but hoping for something so bad, but it's better than not knowing at all. Yeah. It's like hoping for an explanation, basically, I think. It's making the monster. Yeah. So, so you were diagnosed with fibro and the symptoms got worse. And, and how, so, and you were nearly diagnosed with lupus, we'll say, or diagnosed with near lupus. Um, and what was that process like for this stuff? So for actually going to the doctor and trying to get taken seriously? Well, I have lost count of how many specialists I've seen. I lost count of how many rheumatologists alone that I've seen because they just say no except for my last one who said, we'll try the plaque for now, which worked for a very long time. Um, I've had many tests, um, pretty much any test you can think of. Although I have a new one on next week that I have never had before, so that's exciting. Ooh. Of Venus Doppler? Eh. I don't know. Exciting, right? Yeah. So... The- it's being poked, being prodded, being used to having everything taken out of you and all of your blood gone and peeing in jars and all of those things. But one good thing is in the beginning of 2017, I saw a neurologist who diagnosed me with autonomic dysfunction. Okay. And that I believe is 100% accurate. Um, can attribute to the fevers. I don't sweat, which is part of that. Um, lots of different things. So right now we're trying to figure out, is this all related to the dysautonomia or is the dysautonomia secondary to other things? Yeah. Because there's such a range that dysautonomia can cause. So you, you, don't, you don't know until you've done everything. Right. And it's so hard with a practitioner trying to figure out where to intervene. Like, because I do, I have some, some dysautonomic symptoms. I have always been a fainter. Like I don't faint all the time. It's triggered. It's vasovagal syncope, but like that can happen and there's nothing really to treat about it. And then when I was really sick from a mold exposure, I had like pretty severe POTS, you know, I was going, I think I went up to 190 in the doctor's office from the fake tilt table. So not tilt table, just lying down, sitting, standing. And it's like, oh, well, I've always been someone who gets a little bit weird, but it's never been this extreme. And so it's kind of latently there, but there's something else that's causing it to be a real problem, you know? Yeah. I actually, I don't, I don't pass out. But I have other other symptoms that led them to believe it. And I have the nerve damage and lung disease. You know, I like I forget sometimes what all there is until yeah. I write write it all out and I'm like, wow, I am just busted. A lot's happening in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I wanna make sure we cover all of the like medical timeline first. So is there anything in between many rheumatologists and then eventually getting treated effectively for lupus and then the the neurologist? Wow, that's my brain has had a busy day and it's losing things now. Very good. I I mean, I've seen rheumatologists, pulmonologists, neurologists. um, I think I saw... Maybe a hematologist, gastroenterologist. Yeah, you learn a lot of new words. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to remember everything because it's just been nonstop. Yeah. And there it's are hard- dead ends. Yeah. And and then you you think you can get the willpower to be like, they can't find anything, so I'm just going to be strong. And maybe it works for a while, but it's never permanent. Yeah. Like, those tests were all negative, so I must be better. Yeah. 
or they're telling me they're telling me that I'm faking it, so I I must be. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. I, that just happened to me last week in the yeah. ER. In the ER. You know that if I just tried a little harder, I'd be surprised at what I could do. That's helpful. Yeah, the don't worry about the wheelchair or the falling in the bathroom or all of that. Just try harder. Yeah, that's really good. That's some good medical practice right there. But that's the first time I ever stood up to an ER doctor. Because ER doctors are the worst of all the doctors. Mm-hmm. They don't understand chronic illnesses at all. And that's the first time I stood up to him. And I was like, no, this is, you need to help me. I'm here for help. And you are going to help me. And I got a new medication out of it and a referral. So. Yeah. You're like, just send me to the right person. Just do, do something. I'm here for a reason. I'm not choosing to not be able to use my legs. I'm not choosing to not be able to hold my bladder. Like, why would somebody choose that? Yeah. Yeah. And something that I find so difficult relating to that is, and what we were talking about with testing, is it's like you get to a point, if your tests are all coming back negative or inconclusive, where they, obviously, they just don't know how to help. And for some reason in the medical community, it's like, not an option for them to just say that, for them to just be like, listen, I believe you and I don't know the answer. Well, actually, my latest doctor is an immunologist and he he has been trying and I had a, um, a deficiency, an IG deficiency. Mm-hmm. They thinks he's fixed with vaccines and we'll see. But he doesn't know what else to do when he just said that he's like I'm I think you should keep looking for answers but I cannot do anything else yeah and that reassuring almost because he cared yeah and that's the like gaslighting thing um right are you familiar with that term I I am what what is what do you mean in this situation so part part of it so gaslighting being like when you when somebody tries to undermine your sanity, basically, by telling you something that is not true and that over time you start to believe their side and it really interferes with your like relationship to reality because your body is telling you one thing and this person is telling you something else and so you start disbelieving your body in this instance. Oh, um, that's absolutely it, yeah. Yeah, and I think with it's so it's like, from this play and then a movie that's called Gaslight. And in the movie slash play, there's like, a, it's, what's her name from Casablanca? I think that doesn't matter. Ingrid Bergman. Anyway, whoever it is, she gets married to this guy and he moves into her house and he starts like flickering the gas lighting basically. So that's why it's called that. It's like a gaslit house and he's secretly searching for something in the attic so he turns on the lights in the attic all the time and the way that gas systems work is that the more lights are on the lights flicker every time because it there's like a change in the fuel or whatever um and so she's seeing this happen and he keeps telling her that it's not happening and then he keeps like moving her keys and doing other stuff and convincing her that it's not safe for her to go outside and it's because he's trying to i don't know find treasure in her attic or something i forget so He's just trying to convince her that she's actually not sane by doing all these things and lying to her. And she believes him because why wouldn't she? Um, and then at That's the end. Violence. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the end in the movie, it's I think it's like a cop or something who's taking an interest in her who basically just says like, no, your experience is real. That was not true. And the thing with gaslighting is that because it happens in relationships, it happens in all these different contexts. And it's like, when you're in that experience, when, you, when you're experiencing that and you're starting to doubt your own reality, all it takes is one person who to be like, I believe you, this situation is bonkers. That's exactly what it is. Because after, after that incident in the ER, I was like at home and just saying like, I should just try harder then. I guess I'm not trying hard enough. And Dustin looked at me. He's like, are you saying that because of what that doctor said to you? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, don't listen to that doctor. That doctor doesn't know how you're feeling. And you know how you're feeling. 
and what you're feeling is real and it's you're right just having someone say that to you changes everything but having someone say that it, you're faking it changes everything too and it makes you second guess yourself i use a wheelchair now and it makes me think maybe i shouldn't be using this wheelchair even though i do much better with it because i don't deserve to have it, you know, like I'm not that my my disability is not valid enough. I'm not disabled enough to use a mobility aid. Exactly. That's exactly it though. It sounds so crazy to hear you say it back to me, but that's how it is in my head. And I've been a disability advocate my entire life. I've done classes and workshops since elementary school. And I've been really great at advocating for myself for mental health. But this is different and this is hard. Yeah. Yeah. I it's like when I have needed a mobility aid, which I don't right now, but I have before, I mean, I've used a wheelchair, I've used a cane and I'm always like, people are going to think that I'm just trying to get sympathy or like, I'm just being showy about it. Like it's, it's better if I, whatever it is, like walk extremely slowly and stumble because that's what my walking has looked like when I needed a mobility aid. Like, I don't, it's such a weird feeling. It, it really is. To limit yourself because of other people's perceptions is basically what it comes down to. But it's not really the perception, probably. It's your perception of their perception. Right. It's totally... Well, it doesn't come from nowhere, but it is projected. Yeah. And, yeah. But then when I sit in my wheelchair and I can breathe because I'm calm and I can move and I can fast and I can do things, then I realized that, no, this is this is right. This is what I should be doing. It's just convincing myself I deserve it. Yeah. It's doing its job, which is making my life easier. Yeah. yeah. I love my world. <laughs> I really do. I'm so happy I have it because I can, I can do stuff now. Yeah. Yeah. How long have you been using it for? Not long. I have been using it regularly only a month now, actually. Ooh. It's a game changer. Totally. I, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 90% of people who use wheelchairs can use their legs. Right. People don't know that. No. People know a lot of things about disability. True. Extremely true. Yeah, and w- wheelchair use is, like, extremely high on that list. And something... It's come up a few times in these conversations, but I think it partly is that like in the chronic illness community and the disability community, which overlap, but whatever, it's like the wheelchair is the only icon available right now. And I think that makes it especially fraught kind of as a, as a symbol and as a tool, like, um, but it's true. People, many people use them who it's like, we don't. We need a word that is, doesn't have the baggage that need has because people will say, well, people use wheelchairs who don't need them. And it's like, that's, that's not. Hmm? Benefit. Yeah. I benefit from a wheelchair. Yeah. I, I do much better with one. That's for sure. Right yeah. now. Yeah. And that's just the thing. I just think like all of the language around it is so interesting and difficult at the same time. And it, like, feeds into that, yeah. like, faker feeling sometimes. Um, okay. So, so yeah. So, you're using a wheelchair now, and it's great. <laughs> um, and what... Even that, I'm like, I shouldn't be saying that. But no. But I'm happy with it. Yeah. No, that is great. Like, that's the point of it. <laughs> um. And then, so what else are you up to? So we kind of covered the medical side of things, but. Well, 2017 was a wonderful year for me. I did not, I, I mean, I got sick, but I was able to um, really build my photography business. I'm a performance photographer. I do a lot of uh, concerts. Um, I do a lot of drag shows, things like that. I've covered the Austin International Drag Festival. Um, 2017, I really built that. I, I was a new person, like combining the physical and the mental from before 
I was totally in person. I had friends. I went out like all the time to clubs and stuff. I had a career. It was really great. Um, in 2000, in November, I did the Austin International Drag Festival. And that was four days and four nights in a row of nonstop shooting. And I don't think I ever recovered from that. That sounds like a lot. It was. And I mean, I, this past year in 2018, I've done a lot of concerts. I've um, done some drag shows and I've covered, let's see, my last concert I covered was Taylor Swift, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but now this month, I've had to pass on multiple concerts because I'm sick again. And I'm having to pass on drag. I was the photography lead for the Drag King Festival. And I have to pass on that as well because I can't. So I'm trying to figure out where I belong again. Yeah. And so you talked about like last kind of what ended, what felt like a really up phase, we'll say, whatever the opposite of a flare is. What do you think started that to begin with? The Pacano. Okay, so it was when you went on Plaquenil that made a huge difference. It made a huge difference, and it changed my mindset, too. Well, two things, actually. The Plaquenil helped a lot, and the keto diet. Okay, yeah. Changed my life. Um, I've so far lost over 50 pounds. I've, my mental health got stabilized. My physical health got more stabilized. I had more energy, um, which gave me more self-confidence. Yeah. I was a new person. I was 100% a new person, which is why it's so hard to be sick now. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you feel this is what is possible and it's still possible, but it's not happening right now. The hardest part is the uncertainty. That's the worst part of, of, of the chronic illness is you, you can't count on anything. And it's, it's getting hard for me to plan things for my career because I don't know where I'll be by then. Yeah. Yeah. I have so much empathy for that. And I, I was working as an editor before, um, which is good because it was like, I can do it on my own time. So, you know, if I don't, if I don't want to stay up past nine, I don't, nothing's going to require me to do that or whatever. But even so it has very hard deadlines and, I don't know when I'm going to wake up and my brain's not going to be working. Um, You can't, you feel like a flake, but it's not like a choice to do it. It's just, you just don't know. Yeah. And you, I like for me at least, and a couple of people I've talked to who said the same thing. It's like once or twice, you can also, you can choose to push through it. Like healthy people will be like, well, you just got to, you know, like, hike up your whatever, like put on your big girl pants and do it. And you're like, well, I can do that once or twice, but then I crash harder. Like it's never, it's not actually worth the trade-off, even if it is technically true. I don't think that's the way healthy people experience powering through something. No, it's the healthy people don't experience pushing through a night for a really cool show to wind up out for two weeks. Yeah. Which is what I go through because when I shoot, I'm active. I'm an active person I go up and down and all over the place I can't stand still and if I am doing my best which I insist on doing then I'm out for at least a week right and and then it's not fair to the people who take care of me yeah and it affects more than just me you know it's it's my whole support system yeah yeah and that's that's part of what I think is such a hard piece of the trade-off is that some things it's, it's like, how do you balance what's worth it in terms of what is worth it to do, even though you know you're going to pay for it later? And what are the realities of paying for it later when you're not the only one paying for it, too? And you never know how bad it could be. Like, yeah. after last year's draft fest, I was out until March. Mm-hmm. I was not myself again until March, and that was in November. Yeah, yeah. And what does it look like for you to be out now? Um, I, there's the mobility issues, um, pain, 
lots of pain. Um, I have breathing problems, sometimes to the point where I can't speak. Um, I just stay in bed. Mm-hmm. A lot. I can edit from my bed, so that's yeah. good. Yeah. But it's very lonely. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Um, and so, yeah, what do you think, what does an ideal balance look like to you of all of the things, if it were possible? Balance is not my strong suit. Yeah. Go harder or go hard and then stay home, I guess, is the <laughs> way An ideal balance. Well, that's a hard question. It's okay if you don't know the answer, but... I I want to do everything. Yeah. That's where I'm at, because I know what it's like to be able to do things, and that's all I can think about. Yeah. when I do things. Yeah. So it's like, just try to reinforce and reinforce to get there. Um, well, then I have a different kind of question relating to keto, especially. So what other things have you done like have you run experiments on yourself basically have you tried yes yeah more out there or less out there stuff whatever it is um so the keto was a plus mm-hmm. i don't think i'll every time i quit i come back because it, it i need it yeah um i did try gluten-free i tried dairy-free um i didn't do much with supplements and things like that because I'm already on so many pills. Yeah. I don't want to add them if I don't have to. Um, compression stockings help a lot. Oh. I, I wear those every day now and they, they really make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Nothing too crazy. I do too much research. Yeah. Far too much research. Like I should stop, but I can't. There's a lot of deep holes to fall down into, especially on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Have you have you developed any theories for yourself? I know you talked about believing that the mental health and the physical health really kind of are entwined. Um, do you have one, like, it doesn't matter if you think that it is research supported or factual, but one story that you tell yourself about how this came about? Do you know what I mean? A trauma. Yeah. It's it's all from trauma. I uh I mean individual flares are because I can tell you like what I did to cause them usually and when I can't it's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Cuz at least when I can I can be like, well then I shouldn't have done that. But if I can't then it's just like I did everything right. But as a whole Yeah, I I was adopted and um I think being born into a situation of trauma just like getting a start in the world like that did a lot to me um i had some traumatic experiences growing up and then when i was 23 24 uh my dad died and i he had died from a heart attack and i was the only one that was home at the time um yeah culmination of all of that i think just blew my body up yeah it shocks your system yeah. It's like I've talked to a few people with um PTSD diagnoses which it's it's interesting when you a research hole you can fall into is just learning about that and the nervous system and like fight or flight responses and how our body can get trapped in those and that that has real physical repercussions that we don't always like learn about or honor maybe. So that's really interesting because uh the autonomic system is what controls the fight or flight, the fight or flight response. Right. And that's what is definitely wrong with me is my autonomic system. So now I'm wondering if the, I'm going to have to do some more research because <laughs> I never put that together. Yeah, something that I I don't know nothing about and don't advocate or not advocate, but. I think it's episode three. This is a fun thing about making a podcast. Episode three, I talked to somebody named Natasha who has, so this one's out there already, uh, but she was diagnosed with PTSD and she was diagnosed with fibro. And she talks about like some of the stuff that she did specifically 
that was to manage PTSD. And so to manage like the tension basically caused by the stress response. And she was like in her, I think in her late 20s, but she said, she was like, I started to meditate five minutes a day as a thing to try. And she was like, and by doing that, by focusing on my body entirely, I just realized how much pain I was in because I didn't know. And so like going through um, some kind of treatment that I forget what it's called right now, that was about like kind of learning to calibrate and manage that. Um, Yeah, I can and I more on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. And think about like, for, for me, it was like coping mechanisms. And I think Natasha talked, a lot of people talk about this. Like before I recognized that there was maybe just something going on with my body, it's like, okay, I'll just drink more, like drink more booze or drink more coffee. And it's not a long-term solution, but it does turn the pain off in the short term or it's distracting. So I think I'm in a unique situation since I have always been on medication. Mm. That medication doesn't bother me. And I I think I actively seek it more than most people do, mm-hmm. as well as actively, actively seek diagnosis more than most people do, because it was kind of how I was raised. Mm-hmm. Like when people are like, I'm going to be on this pill for this in my life. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah I've been on many pills for all of my life so adding another one if it works would just be a good thing and that's why I think the doctors are shocked when I'm like pushing for bigger treatments but like it's not a thing to me I've always been under some kind of medical treatment so just do what you need to do and fix it yeah totally like if it works who cares yeah I mean I'm, I'm on meds anyway just add some more <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But I think I'm really interested, keto, like in diet stuff too. Not, and I don't think that it's like a replacement. Sometimes people talk about it like that. Like, well, if you change your diet, you'll never have to take any medication again. I have a friend who knows how to piss me off. And every time I start complaining about chronic pain and chronic illnesses or people not understanding, he tells me to do a juice cleanse and do some yoga because he knows that that bothers me. Yeah. And he says every single time and it's just expected at this point. And it's irritating. I've had people say their diets will cure me. I've had people say they're, I mean, the people that come out of the woodwork and they find out you're sick. Yeah. It's in. Yeah. But no, this guy, this guy gets it. And that's why it's funny. Yeah. He's, he's just doing it on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's hard because when people are like, it'll solve everything, it undermines in a lot of ways the fact that it does help, like, or it does help many people. So it's funny. Like, I think there are a lot of people who are on and really helped by medication who are like, I'm not going to do anything about my diet because the people suggesting it are like anti-medication jerks. Mm-hmm. And it like creates these other weird ripples where it's like, it might do nothing and it might change a different thing. Like I think all, I think all of these things can work in conjunction with each other, but it's hard. Keto is hard. Keto is. To start. Yeah. Here's the thing. I started keto not for those reasons. I started keto just because I wanted to lose weight. Mm-hmm. But people don't know this. I started keto to prove that low-carb diets are BS and they can't do anything. <laughs> I lost 50 pounds and have better health than before. So I proved myself wrong on that one. That's funny. But it. I mean, it, you're right. It is a very delicate balancing because on one side yeah you have to take responsibility but on the same side it's like when you tell someone to change their diet or whatever you're telling them they're not doing enough for their health and you're blaming them for being sick yeah it sounds like if you like yeah it feels like being blamed for being sick and it's like you're not doing enough I also hate it 
when it's like, I'm doing a lot of things right now. I'm running a lot of miscellaneous experiments and this pet experiment that you're suggesting, like whatever it is, drinking celery juice is something I was just seeing on Twitter today. Like mixing that in with everything else, it's like a huge mental burden. Like if you want to pay for me to have a personal chef slash like trainer to come to my house and make sure that all of this happens, then that might be feasible. But as it is, we only have so much brain time to like incorporate all of this. And people don't know what you already are trying and how it could interact with the things they're suggesting. And people think it's a simple fix. Well, are you saying I, I'm choosing to have been sick for this long? Because that's what you're insinuating by saying I'm not doing enough. Is, yeah. Yeah. And I also think this is good. I have many things that I could rant about. I also feel that way sometimes about when people are like, a new test that you could get done or a new specialist that you could see. And it's like going into doctors is also a lot of mental work. And it's not that I want to be sick. It's that I need to like shore up some energy to go and see a new person and get into it with them and like hopefully get a good referral or, or whatever it is like. Yeah. Energy. That's hard me for putting off these specialists and stuff. And he'll be like, you knew you should do this and this is something that could help. Why aren't you doing it? But you know why I'm not doing it because you see how hard it is to go through each one and you see how expensive they are and you see, I mean, it's, it's a lot and they don't seem to help anyway. Right. Right. It's more like often it feels like you're doing it in, so that you can say that you've done it. Like, yes, I've explored this avenue. You don't have to ask me about it anymore. And it's exhausting getting your hopes up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which actually brings me to another question that I have, which is how does, so you live in the States, right? Yes. Yeah. How does insurance play into all of this for you? I am incredibly lucky to have been um, on disability since before age 22 because of my mental health issues. And now because of all of this, um, I am very well taken care of. Yeah. Regarding that, I have Medicare and I have disability, and I'm very fortunate. It, it feels bad to say I'm very fortunate for it, but I I wouldn't survive without it. So. Yeah, it's the reality. With my father dying, um, and being disabled before I was age 22, that means I get survivor benefits which means I get his social security, which is what I live off of. And yeah, it's, it's hard knowing that that's how I'm surviving, but at least I'm able to survive now. Yeah. I think like the, the financial whatever of chronic illness is also, it's really difficult and everybody is managing however they're managing and I think it's important to like see the truth of that I mean disability programs are imperfect and also like uh so when you were working last year where you are is there a cap on your earning in order to stay on disability yeah I wasn't making very much money though it was it was more of a hobby than an actual business but that is a limit, right? Like, there is a limit, yeah. yeah. There is an earning. Yeah, and that. And I, more importantly, I can't get married. Because then you would be a dependent. Because yeah, if I get married, then I would lose every. I would lose my um, income, and I would lose my insurance. Yeah. There are so many extremely frustrating things about like. The bureaucracy of survival, I'm going to call it. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I've just talked to so many different people in different versions of it. So whether it's disability benefits or where their health insurance is coming from. And it's like, I'm lucky now, but here are the limits that it puts on me. 
And you're always so scared that somebody's going to see you walking or laughing or something and report you because clearly you're not sick because you're walking and laughing. Right. It happened. There's horror stories about it. And we're supposed to be sick and just sick and nothing else. Yeah. You're supposed to be miserable all the time. Yeah. 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 Um, I feel like we've covered my main like topic questions. Is there anything else that like you've thought about while we've been talking or that you thought about before knowing what the project is? Yeah, actually. Um, a couple of things. One of them is it's very difficult to um, embrace your disability without making it your identity. Yeah. When I was in high school, I was, I told people that I was bipolar because I, you know, tell them so they, they don't tell each other type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I made it my identity and everything about myself was that. And then for a very long time, I refused to have anything to do with mental illness, advocacy, volunteering, all of that, because I didn't want um, that to be any of my identity. And so now I'm trying to figure out how can I embrace who I am without making making it who I am? And that's that's a struggle. Yeah. You know that? I, I don't, and I love this question. And I actually, I like fell into a Reddit hole um, recently. Have you ever seen the subreddit illness fakers? No. Okay, well, oh. I don't recommend it. <laughs> Yeah, but now I'm gonna have to go look at it. But I'll, I'll like I'll give you the the very brief description. It's basically like, I think it came from some other forum. I don't know how they ended up on Reddit, but like, it's a group of people. I know you know what Reddit is, but like, it's a group of people who are specifically talking about a few high profile like Instagrammers and YouTubers who are chronically ill, um, and like. They have guidelines, so they don't post about anybody who has less than 1,500 followers, and they only post about, like, approved people. But basically, there's a couple people that they follow who they're like, this person is, we believe that there's something going on with them, but they are, like, really inconsistent in their stories. So, like, whatever they say about their health doesn't line up, and, like, they are... Um, like saying that things are happening that don't like line up with how those things actually happen. So this person is saying that they're epileptic, but what they're describing is like how you might read about a seizure, but not what it feels like to have a seizure kind of. Um, Anyway, it's a really weird subreddit and I fell into it the other day and I read a bunch of it, but like one of the things that's on there was they were like, here are some of the red flags that we see in these specific kind of accounts. And it was like really interesting for me, and this is this is why I'm talking about it, was because some of it was a list of like over-identifying with your diagnosis. Because most of the people who are in this subreddit are chronically ill. Like it's not like random healthy people going after chronically ill people. It's like people who are experiencing chronic illness who start to realize that like this other person is profiting from exaggerating a diagnosis that they share um but i like it's really hmm? it sounds like jealousy like they didn't capitalize on enough or something yeah it's super weird but it really got me thinking about it even like as i've started this podcast and like on i do have instagram and i like sometimes post about health stuff although my camera was broken for a long time so i didn't um but i post about health stuff on twitter all the time and it's pretty benign but like I find social media to be such a helpful outlet for just commiserating with people about that um but like it made me think of how especially on the internet how easy it is to like make every single post about your health because you want like it's it's making it your identity basically in the way that you're saying um and it's made me think about that of like okay well I do want chronic illness is a part of my experience and I'm making this podcast now. So like I, I want to be, I want people to know that about me, but like, I don't want to erase every other thing about myself so that I can be seen as credible. 
as a chronically ill person. Does that make sense? It, it does. I'm thinking about my own Instagram now. I made yeah. one, I just started one a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I actually made it to kind of force myself to be positive because I wanted it to be a place of positivity. But it's about chronic illness, disability, and the keto diet. And so I talk a lot about it because yeah. that's the topic. And yeah. I mean, I'm stuck in bed right now. Like, what else am I going to think about? Yeah. This is, this is my life. Like, I don't know. I have friends. I don't know. It, it's very confusing to me, like, how much you're supposed to show, how much you're supposed to limit. It's very difficult. Yeah. And I want to be an advocate. But then if I'm advocating, then that's my life, you know? Oh, goodness. It's, I think the, the main thing is we need to stop worrying about other people. Oh, yeah. It's like serious policing in this one subreddit. It's like serious policing of other people and like in a way that seems exhausting. I'd, again, I wouldn't recommend going there. I just happened to fall into a hole. And some of the things that it made me think about were helpful. Um, just because I think it's easy to get, it's also easy to get negative, which isn't necessarily what they're complaining about, but, but we also aren't obligated to be positive all the time. Like it's both, I think. Yeah. I, I want to be real, but also not too real. I want to be positive, but also real, but it's so it's a tangle is what it is. Yeah. And I've talked to a few people who are, who do have like, a, a second Instagram account, which is just for chronic illness and who find it super, super helpful. So my own opinion, as opposed to the opinion of anonymous people on that subreddit is like, it's great. And there's a great community on there. And for me, I like, for me, that's on Twitter, but I know that it's there on Instagram. And I know people who are like, this has been so incredibly helpful for me for all of those reasons. I think also what I wanted to say was there, as we talked about, were a lot of are a lot of misconceptions with disability, and I think that needs to be addressed. It's the largest minority in the world. It is the only minority that anyone can become part of at any time, and I believe, and most people that I talk to believe, it is the most ignored minority. Um, over two thirds of polling places in 2016 were not ADA accessible. And that is a right that was taken away from this community. Um, when I used to shoot in clubs, none of them in my area were wheelchair accessible. And that's not right. So I think there are a lot of issues that are just simply being ignored right now. And I think our current administration, excuse me, is very much pushing us down as well as all other minorities but i don't think we're getting enough attention for what we are losing both in the community and in the schools um i've been hearing horror stories lately about how infrastructure on like like sidewalks there are so many cracked and broken sidewalks that people in wheelchairs have to go in the street and wind up getting hit by cars continue like all the time because people aren't caring enough to make their own city accessible for them mm -hmm. there's a ton of issues and i really want to start shining a light on that this community my community because yeah. we need i have a voice and not everyone does Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be using mine more. Yeah. Yeah. I that think. Was a long rant no. about disability rights. But... No, it's a great rant. And like, this will come out after the midterms. And also, I actually said part of this exact same thing to somebody yesterday, which will also come out after the midterms. But, but like, um, pre existing conditions is back on the table again as being like a disqualifier for insurance. And, that affects so many people as if insurance weren't hard enough, like getting access to good health care, which is different than physical accessibility, certainly. And I, 
it's all important. But like, yes, I agree with you. This administration is not trying to list, lift up people who are living with disability or disabled people because we all get to choose how we identify in that sphere. I know someone whose premium went through the roof simply because she was diagnosed with depression. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know much about that topic because of my situation, but I need to educate myself more because you know that people are going to die. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's real. And I don't know like how, how it happens kind of out in the real world, we'll say, because I feel like I'm also in an echo chamber. <laughs> like my Twitter is all like disabled people and chronically ill people and other like activists. And I, I love it because it's super informative for me, but it's not, there's not like other, I don't know that other people are learning from that. So I think it's great. Do it. I have high hopes for my future. I try to hold on and trust as much as I can the positivity that comes into my life. Um, I'll figure it out. Yeah. And then I'll figure it out again when I have to do it again. Yeah. it's It comes in waves. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the seventh episode of No End in Sight. I've got lots more interviews recorded already for future episodes, so make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. I would love to hear your thoughts about making peace with your illness or disability without letting it consume your identity, and you can share those with me by tagging at B on Instagram and Twitter. And if these stories have been resonating with you, then I'd love to hear your story. I'm realizing that I've interviewed a lot of straight, cis, white women, and I'd particularly love to talk to people with other perspectives. To get details about how to contact me, just head to noendinsight.co slash share-your-story, I think. Anyway, when you get there, it's one of the menu options. You'll find it. Last thing, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. I love to cross-stitch as a way to feel productive during flares when I'm stranded in front of the television. I'm going to be adding a bunch of simple black and white patterns to my collection soon, and I'd love it if you check this out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.